0: Noah's Flood is one of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture. The building of the ark, the animals coming in two by two, are certain, certainly would make the top ten of children's storybook Bibles, right? And VBS nurseries, I mean, I mean it's just very, very popular. But with familiarity can breed lethargy. In our hearts, we now already know everything that we need to know. So, here we are today. I'm going to probably spend, you know, Genesis uh, 6 through 9 really is three chapters on the flood. And so, we might be in talking about the flood for a few weeks. So, um, don't stay home. Keep coming. <laughs> um, Today we're really just going to look at the cause of the flood, the flood's cause. Because of man's evil thoughts and actions, God declares that he will blot out man from the face of the earth. And in our passage today, God gives a very brief explanation of the evil of man. And how we understand that explanation can greatly affect whether we will identify with those people who lived before the flood. The question we must ask ourselves is this. How much do our hearts resemble those who lived before the flood? Do I see myself in the attitudes of those people? Another way you might say this is, could God actually say about me, I'm sorry that I made him, and I will blot him out from the face of the earth? Or is our attitude more, I am, I may not be great, but I am better than those people. John Owen, great Puritan theologian, pastor, said, the seed of every sin is in every heart. The seed of every sin is in every heart. Now that sounds really profound. It kind of rings, you know, rolls off the tongue real nice poetically. But it is very difficult to believe. Most of us look at the terrible sins of others with a certain disdain. A certain superiority. What they have committed, we could never commit. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible, and not just the Bible, but God's sovereign working out of history, God has has gone to great lengths to convince all of us that due to our connection with Adam, we are all slaves to sin. And apart from grace, slaves to every sort of sin. So that's where we are, Genesis 6, 1 through 8. Let's let's look at the text together. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, is the conclusion of a larger section of Scripture. It begins in Genesis 5, 1. And if you look there, it says, it's very easy if you have a Bible to do that. If you have your phone, you got to start flipping like this, like this, so... I'm always pushing for just reading your Bible, so anyway. uh, Genesis 5 is the beginning of which Genesis 6, 8 is the end. It's like a, it's like their own little peric- their own sermon, I can't call it a pericope in this, you know, their own section of scripture, it is, it is the sermon, so we're reading the conclusion to what is the beginning, okay? Now, chapter 5 begins with Adam, follows his line of his descendants, and we can rightly call that line a godly line. Cain has killed Abel, but God has given Adam and Eve another man named another son named Seth, and from Seth we see that some of his descendants walked with God, Enoch being most prominent. We are not then to c- conclude that even though the scales are tilted in the direction of evil, some men have overcome that tendency and become good, and others have been evil. It's not, just a, it's not just like, okay, some are bad, others are good. That's not the point. And we are not to comfort ourselves that as long as we don't become as bad as the Canites, that we are no longer in danger of God's judgment. That's not the conclusion we're supposed to, to draw What we are to see in Genesis 6 is that the fallen image of man has overcome the original image of God. Now hear that. Just think about that for a moment. God made Adam in his image. But because Adam fell, this fallen image of Adam has overcome the image of God. Man originally reflected the character of God. So if you originally looked at Adam, you would be looking at God's character. Now that man has fallen, whose image does he reflect? And the text wants you to know that he now reflects the image of man. Doesn't really describe that yet, it just says the image of man. Now I just want to stress to you that it is true. That in some sense, even as fallen people, we still bear the image of God. But it's very marred. It is very broken. And it's just like a, like a remnant of it. And we look very much more like fallen Adam than we do like true God. It's interesting, that, and, and if you want, you can turn there to Luke 3, 38. As, as the Bible is giving the, uh, the genealogy of Jesus... They go all the way from Jesus, all the way back to Adam. I'm not going to take you through all that, but right in verse 38, Luke 3, 38, listen to what they say of Adam. You know, the son of Enos, who is the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay? Adam reflected originally the character of God so well that Luke calls him the son of God. Okay? Now, the question that we need to ask ourselves, and I think Genesis 6, 1 through 8 is telling us, it's answering the question, what happened to these sons of God? What happened to them? Where are they? And I think that um, there are, the familiarity of the scriptures is, is there so much you can just kind of read it over and not realize that their, their history really could have worked out very differently. Um, I don't want to call it alternate history, but, but you could imagine the sons of Seth being the godly line and the sons of Cain being the ungodly line, and the history could have got worked out where they were locked in this eternal battle, right? The sons of God and the sons, and fighting with each other, and who's going to win the battle, right? Who's going who's to actually win? We could, have, we could have had a history where, ooh, the sons of Cain over time kill off the sons of God or something like that, um, but that's not what we find. In fact, we find a very different history. What happens to the sons of God? That's the real question of this story. And the whole passage hinges on how we understand the phrase sons of God. Verses 1 and 2. When the man began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. There are basic, there's lots of interpretations to this this, these verses, but they basically fall into two categories. And I'm going to give you the category that I don't believe first. So um, and I'm going to call this view the supernatural view. Supernatural view. In this view, sons of God are taken to be fallen angels they are angelic beings supernatural beings and the terrible view that is in, the, the terrible sin that is in view is that these fallen angels look upon women and they see that they're beautiful and instead of maintaining their place in the spiritual realm, they, they in sense take on human flesh and they actually take on human wives. So you've got like this angelic being together with a human woman and they come together and they produce a sort of semi-divine kind of person the Nephilim. And as a result of this demonic corruption, God chooses to destroy all humanity in a worldwide flood. Now, although this is not the view that I hold, it is a legitimate view, and I'm actually going to give you five really good reasons why you should believe that view. (laughs) Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, Well, here they are the first is that when you see the phrase sons of God in the original Hebrew, it's a word that means Benny Elohim, Benny meaning son of, and then Elohim meaning God, right? You look at that that statement, Benny Elohim, it is only used four times in the Old Testament. Two of those times are right here in Genesis, and the other two are in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, I'm just going to read you one of them in Job. Job chapter 1, 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where, we, where have you come? Satan answered, the Lord, and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now, that Job passage is commonly accepted. I I think there may be some question, but it's commonly accepted that the sons of God there refer to angels. The the second reason is, Is that the Greek translation of the Old Testament? So you know it was maybe second century. The Greek translation, they actually translate this Genesis passage as angels of God. They actually do it. That's a pretty strong statement. That's the translation that Jesus used a lot during his time. You know, and he doesn't ever confront it. You know, doesn't ever say it's wrong. The third is that there's this 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 book called First Enoch that is not necessarily canonical, but it was a very much respected and used uh, book uh, during the time of Christ. And um, it certainly holds that view. Let me let me just read it to you. This is it, its statement in First Enoch 6. It came to pass when the children of men had multiplied and that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters, and the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. That's the statement. It's obvious. First, Enoch takes the passage that way. Then, if you go to the New Testament, Jude and Second Peter both seem to make some allusion to Enoch that might mean the same thing. I'm not going to go into all that for you, but you could, you, you're, you know. Jude 1, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, you know, and then he talks uh, about the judgment. And then in 2 Peter, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into gloomy hell, darkness, and then he says, right immediately after that, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So it seems to connect those together. That's the fourth reason. The last reason is this was the dominant view of the first two centuries of the early church. So, all those reasons, I do not, uh, you know, poo-poo or try to, you know, demean people who think of the angelic view as their view. But with Augustine, and really with the reformers since then, they have taken a different view, which is largely called a, I call it the natural view because it doesn't have to do with angels at all. Verse 3 makes very clear that whatever was going on between the sons of God and the daughters of man is the reason why God brings the judgment of the flood. You can't get around that. That is the big issue. And God declares in verse 3 that he will not tolerate evil forever. He's going to put a stop to it. Many in our day today think God is indifferent to evil. He does, he's, you know, they, even some people get mad at God because he's not doing anything against evil to make him out like he's indifferent, he doesn't care. And I think if you, anyone communicates that kind of attitude to you that you should just take them right to Genesis 6 and show them that God blotted out man because of the evil of the world. That's, that's his reason. God states that man is flesh. This just means that you can't be alive unless God actually is breathing life into you. He's the one that gave you life, and he's the one that can take it just like that. Uh, he says that he's, his days will only be 120 years. There's only really two different ways to take that. One is that he will greatly shorten the lifespan of people after the flood, which is very clear. He does that. There were people who lived almost 1,000 years before the flood, after the flood, not so much, although there are a few exceptions after the flood that live longer, like Abraham and, and others. So, um, so that's one possible understanding. The other is that there seems to be about 100 years between the time when God first speaks to Noah and when the flood comes. And so it could be that he's limiting the amount of time between the two. So both of those are possible. Both of those have merit. You can choose either one you want on that. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now the supernatural view views the Nephilim as a hybrid of angels and man. That's what it is. And these offspring are large and strong. Okay? Think of the heroes of Greek mythology, right? They've interacted with the gods, and they've they've they're like half human, half divine. That's kind of the picture that you're getting. Um, only in usually in Greek mythology, these, these half breeds are the heroes, um, whereas in, in the Bible, they're they're very evil. Okay. The word Nephilim, you just need to know, is that it's just basically the Hebrew word that brought into English. It just means translated fallen ones. That's what it means. There is only one other mention of Nephilim in the Bible, and it refers to the time of Moses going into the promised land, and uh, the spies get a report and they say, there are Nephilim in the land, the sons of Anak. And they are giants in our eyes. We're like grasshoppers. And so there's this connection between, between big people and, and, uh, of Moses' time and the big people of before the flood. But they can't be the same people. It should be obvious to you, if God killed everybody in the flood... And the only ones that were left were Noah and his family. Then the Nephilim were called, killed off before the flood. So there can't be neph- the same Nephilim genetically in, after the flood. So what we're dealing with are probably people that have similarities and that they're large and they're evil and they're men of renown, but they, um, they're not necessarily genetically the same people. <clears throat> in the supernatural view, The reason why mankind becomes so evil is that demons are genetically corrupting their DNA. Now just think about that for a minute. When I realized that, that was the spark that made me throw off this view. (laughs) I do agree that Satan is spiritually working to corrupt the minds of men and deceive us and lead us into darkness. I I believe believe that there are demons at work. But I do not believe that it is the intermixing of demons with man that causes us to be so evil. You see, at a most basic level, if you believe that, then God only brings judgment of the flood because people are some kind of evil that I can't even relate to. And I think that that puts it into like a, uh, it's out there. The evil's out there. I would, God would never feel that way about me. I, on the other hand, believe that the attitudes and the temptations of those who lived before the flood are very much like our own. That's what I believe. Go back to Genesis 5, 1 through 3 a moment. Notice, I talked to you about that there's this distinction between the likeness of God and the likeness of man. In Genesis 1 through 3, or Genesis 5, 1 through 3, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. God see this is a new section of scripture and they're reiterating that the way God made us is is to reflect God's character but then in verse 3 Adam lived 130 years he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image Do you see the contrast between the likeness of God and the likeness of Adam? You would say, well, it wouldn't be a problem if Adam hadn't fell. They would be one and the same. The likeness of God and the likeness of Adam would be the same. But now that there's a fall, they are in contrast with one another. Sometimes this natural view is called the, the, the godly line or the sons of Seth or various things they call it but but i like the natural view because there's nothing that has to be int- inserted into the text that is otherworldly to make us evil ever since the fall man's bent has been towards evil and he doesn't really need any help in becoming more and more evil now what we see of all the children of Adam and Eve. You have the Canaanites, the sons of Cain, that were certainly ungodly. But then, why does it not branch out and give us this family tree of the Sethites like there's all these godly people of the Sethites? No. In fact, we see this little tiny thread of godliness. And I think that the point is this the sons of God are becoming extinct. That's what's happening. Even for a while, due to God's grace, there is this, there's this at least a few people who continue to try to call upon God and reflect the character of God. And there's a few of them doing that. But but what happens to them? What do they do? The sons of God, those few who are left, who are in some way reflecting God's character, instead of putting God's character first, they chase after the daughters of man. Now, there's nothing here, I'll talk about this in a moment, but um, it's not just that the daughters are evil and the sons are good. That, it could be flipped. But notice the language in Genesis 6. It says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took any they chose. That language is very purposeful. If you remember in the garden, Genesis 3, 6, listen to the wording. When the woman saw that the tree was good... Now, do you want to know what the word in Genesis 6 for attractive is? Good. And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took and ate its fruit. She took whatever one she wanted to choose rather than submit to God. So the very same thing that that caused Eve to choose that was wrong is living in the, the sons of God, instead of just saying, Lord, you want me to get married to another person that I can be one flesh with, and we can, we can have a similar love of God together, they said, you know, that's not good enough for me. The, there's other people out there who I want more, and so I will leave godliness in order to join with those who are ungodly. Now, if you grew up in a church or came to know Jesus at an early age, one of the biggest choices of your life is who you will marry. And God gives young people a lot of leeway. He only really gives you one rule in Scripture, is it not? Be equally yoked with another person of the same faith who loves God. Why? So that you can have a godly offspring. It's like the one rule he gives. Choose for yourself who you want, but do it. It's almost like in the garden. You can have anyone you want out there, but choose in the faith. Sounds good, doesn't it? But we all struggle with that. We all live with that thought of, but so-and-so looks pretty good. Ah, Maybe their faith isn't all that I would like. Right Do you see that tendency happening? <clears throat> Is it not also interesting in Genesis uh, six that or in Genesis five we see that the the most gifted musicians, the most uh, gifted um, uh, or the most wealthy those who who uh, have the best farms and and do the husbandry of, of uh, raising sheep and the, the best and, and, and smartest, and the ones who are the um the biggest and the strongest and the most renowned the ones that you would be drawn to in society and i like to put it in these terms the most gifted the most interesting people of the world are not always the most godly is that not true So as you're going to think about who you want to join together with and live your life, are you going to choose those who are godly first? Or are you going to have all these other criteria and put godliness way down on the list? Now wait a minute, you're telling me that when we do this, this these are the types of sins that led to the flood? Isn't it much easier to believe that these demons came in and did all this stuff, and it's out there, it's not connected to me. But if it's right here... hmm. Starts, starts hitting home. Now, God is not against beauty. He's not against smarts. He's not against all those things. Remember, Sarah was very beautiful, right? The, the godly woman in Proverbs 31 is very smart and gifted. It's not, you don't look for the dumb people in the world. That's not the point. It is to place faith at the center of of your choices. Now let me just, well, let me do this. It could go either way. It doesn't have to be the sons of God and the daughters of man. In that culture it was. The sons made the choices as to who they would marry. But in our culture, it could be the other way. The daughters of God chose the sons of man. Right? It could flip it around. It's all of us. Now let me widen the scope a little bit. It's not, I think that the the choice of a spouse is a very concrete just, just discernible, uh, just clear. It's black and white for us. But how about all of the different ways that we make idols of this world? And we think that we have to sacrifice our pursuit of God in order to pursue wealth, comfort, you know, all the things of this life, right? To be important in this world, we can give up the love of God. Guys, that's the way the church has died in our country. It wasn't the big decisions. It was the little decisions to not make faith central. Thank you. Calvin was right on when he said that we are idol factories. Now, discerning whether or not you are making an idol is hard. I don't know when I look at Hayes Hall if he's, if he's just having to live in this world and get a job and he's working hard and, and you know, that's, he chose his career. If he's, if he, that's just, you have to live in the world. Or if he's actually saying, I'm chasing after the world and leaving God behind. I, I don't know when that happens. But I know that it's a struggle that every one of us deal with. get to the New Testament, and Jesus says, you know, seek the kingdom of God. Is that what he says? Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, I hope you are beginning to feel, even though there's a lot of reasons to accept the angelic review, I hope you're seeing that the real point of the text is our evil. And I hope you're beginning to identify with people there and that you also are an idol factory and that these things are what makes us evil that God hates. I hope you're seeing those things. Because really the truth of Genesis 6 is that apart from grace, there are no sons of God. You could say in Genesis 6 that the the sons of God are whittled down to one man, Noah. But if you know the rest of the story of Noah, you know that Noah's not even a perfect son of God either. And of course, Noah's descendants are not perfectly sons of God either. You know what it all boils down to? There's only one son of God. And a lot of times we hear the phrase Son of God referring to Jesus Christ, and you think, oh, that must mean he's God, he's divine. And I think there are some passages that do mean that. He is God, he is divine. But I'm also learning to see that when it says that he is the Son of God, he is perfectly reflecting the character of God. And what's interesting is that's our salvation. You no longer reflect the sons of God. Jesus does reflect the sons of God. Trust in Jesus Christ. He unites him to yourself, and he is conforming you to the true image of God. Colossians, the, uh, Paul says to believers, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. That's what salvation is. Jesus Christ saying, I'm going to take someone who loves evil and I'm going to save them and I'm going to recreate in them and make them like God again. Romans 8, 19, for the creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's what it's all about. We're going to be a people that actually reflects God again. Well, that brings us back to Noah. Genesis 6, 8, in conclusion. It's interesting that this, state, this final verse of this section kind of ends so abruptly. It just says, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. But, but Noah found favor. And we're going to talk about Noah more in the next section, so this will be very quick. But, but the word found favor is the Hebrew word hen. Hen, it's a simple word. It means grace. Noah found Grace. Noah doesn't get saved because he's good. He's better than the most. He is saved because God gave him grace. And he trusted in a righteousness that is not his own. And God looks upon Noah with grace. He sees Noah through the eyes of Christ. And if there is a change in Noah's heart such that he does reflect the character of God, it is being occurring because Christ is working in his heart like he works in us today. see the lesson of of Genesis 6 is not that there are some really really bad people that God's going to take down but I'm not one of them that is not the message of Genesis 6 the message of Genesis 6 is that we are all slaves to sin and only in Jesus Christ can the image of God be renewed in us and so what is our hope? We are to cast ourselves upon Christ. We are to declare that he is the only true son of God and we are to believe in him. We are to acknowledge our sin and say that, Lord, if it were me back then, I would have been the one that you should have just blotted out. You should have blotted me out. But may I find grace. May I be renewed in the image of God to the glory of God. Amen. 461, Not What My Hands Have Done. If you'll sing this song and look at the lyrics as you sing it, oh my goodness. It is all about not my righteousness but Christ. May we sing it with gusto because we believe in the Son of God. Let's rise together and sing.